Hey, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. I want to preach a message this morning on generosity. However, uh, generosity not necessarily in maybe what you think. Because I think often when we talk about generosity, immediately our mind goes towards finances. But I want to take you to the Sermon on the Mount. So before we get into the actual passage, let's talk a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most famous sermons that Jesus teaches. It's actually a teaching of about 21 different topics over three chapters that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first of five messages recorded in Matthew. It's also found in Luke. Uh, According to Betts, he worded it this way, that the sermon is an attempt at presenting the theology of Jesus in a systematic fashion, designed out of sayings of Jesus grouped according to thematic points of doctrine, considered to be of primary importance. In other words, what Jesus is about to do for three chapters is highly critical to the systematic theology of who God is and who Jesus is, even to the ecclesiology of what the church and Christians are supposed to do and are supposed to operate. Jesus directs the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, and the crowds begin to gather. So a misnomer, and there'll be two artist renderings. One of them is in the Sistine Chapel on the side of the the wall, but you'll see some of these artist renderings from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Uh, But what often people think is that Jesus gathered up hundreds and thousands of people and wanted to preach to everybody. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it actually says that Jesus just sat with his disciples. And so it kind of paints a little different picture when you understand the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus literally just sat down with his disciples and just started talking to them. And as Jesus started to do that, it says the crowds began to gather around him. And so it wasn't as though Jesus sent out flyers and told everybody to invite your neighbor. I'm going to give a sermon that's going to last for like three days. He, he just sat down with his disciples and just wanted to talk to his disciples. But inevitably, the crowds began to gather. This is at the point of probably Jesus' highest point in ministry. It's right when everything's happening, miracles are starting to happen, and it's at this point that he sits down with his disciples and begins to teach. The Sermon on the Mount near the Sea of Galilee is where it's at. Although the exact location is not known, there's actually a church. So if you go over to Israel, if you go to Jerusalem, there's a church called the Church of the Beatitudes. It's a picture up behind me of that actual church, and they put that church where they believe Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount. So that's where the church actually sits. And it's called the Church of the Beatitudes because that's one of the major points that Jesus makes within the Sermon on the Mount. Stott states that the sermon is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament. And I like how he words it. He says that what Jesus is actually doing is he is actually teaching on the Christian counterculture. And here is a Christian value system. It's an ethical standard. It's a religious devotion. It's attitude about money, about generosity. It's ambition. It's about lifestyle. It's about networking of relationships, all of which are total variants with the non-Christian culture of that time. He says it this way, that such living is in conscious distinction from the norms of the rest of society. In other words, it's a call to radical discipleship. So often we read the Sermon on the Mount as just a, a bunch of nice words that Jesus says. Jesus is actually calling his disciples to radical discipleship. He's actually setting a moral and ethical standard to his disciples that is going complete countercultural to what's happening in the Jewish culture of the, of the time. Oswald Chambers says it this way. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is not a set of principles to be obeyed apart from identification in Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting his way 
in us. And that is what this is about. It is not just a list of rules or a list of statements that we should just follow. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of somebody's life and we live radically countercultural to the way that the world is living. And if you do read through the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7, you will absolutely see that the theme woven all through it is the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven. It is the kingdom of God. This is his constant theme. Jesus is inviting his disciples and anybody that hears it, he's inviting us into what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven. That's what it's really coming down to. So the major themes, there's about 21 major themes. I'm not going to read through all of them, but it ranges from the Beatitudes where he starts to be in salt and light. He talks about concepts about anger, about lust. He talks about marriage and divorce. He talks about oaths we make. He talks about retaliation, loving your enemies. He talks about giving to the needy. The Lord's Prayer is in there. So he's teaching about prayer. He's talking about the golden rule, do unto others. Uh, he talks about building, his, building the house on the rock. And ultimately, it's on the authority of Jesus. And, and in most of your Bibles, you'll have little subheadings. And you'll be able to see as you go through it, they're in groupings of about five or six or seven verses. Some are a little longer. And these are the, those theological groupings that Jesus just began to talk. And as he talked, it just began to land into the ears of people around him. Today, I want to highlight a part of that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 to 4. Only four verses today. And this is where Jesus talks about generosity. And my hope today is that you'll have a right mind and a right attitude about what does it mean to be generous. Not in the world's concept, maybe. Not maybe even what you've been taught about before in church. Because again, I think immediately our mind goes towards, well, they just want my money. That's what it means. In fact, I was reminded of a, of a joke I heard not that long ago. Actually, a joke I heard a long time ago that I was reminded of not that long ago. And it's about these two guys that were stranded on an island. And these two guys are stranded on the island. It's a small, remote island, and they're stranded there. And one of the guys that's stranded on the island is frantic. He is pacing back and forth. He's yelling. He's trying to find anything he can to send up a signal. And the other guy is just laying on the beach, just relaxing, kind of soaking in the rays, just enjoying being on the beach. Well, the one guy that's real frantic and panicking runs up to the other guy and says, hey, aren't you worried that we are going to die? Aren't you worried about that? We need to find help. And the guy relaxed and said, no, just relax a minute. Relax. Listen, I make... $100,000 a week, and I faithfully tithe every week to my church. Trust me when I tell you, my pastor will find me. He'll find me. Come on. Come on. Come on, Mark. Is that, Mark's my gauge. Is that, was that a good one? All right. I test these jokes out on people all week, and usually they don't laugh. So thank you for laughing, even if it is sympathy laughs. But, but isn't that kind of what we think about when we think about the church and money. Well, okay, they just want my money. That's all they want. Jesus actually talks about generosity at a much deeper level. So let's go ahead and read in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 to 4. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Very interesting. He starts off the whole conversation about generosity around one word. What was the word? Righteousness. It was righteousness. Very important concept, so keep that in mind. Thus, when you give to the needy, everybody say give to the needy. Say that out loud. Give to the needy. We're going to explain that. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. He's referring to the Pharisees. 
and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, everybody say, give to the needy. Say it again. Give to the needy. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Two things about generosity I want to talk about this morning. Number one is generosity is a practice of righteousness. Let's just talk about that first and foremost. It's a practice of righteousness. If you've been with us any time now, you probably are hearing that word a lot. The word righteousness is so weighted in the overall theology of God and of the Bible and of the church. You'll hear it constantly, righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. But it's always paired with, well, whose righteousness are you talking about? And it always refers to, by the way, it is Jesus' righteousness that makes us right. So when you hear us talk about the righteousness and it's an act of righteousness, it's actually not about how good I am or how much I deserve or how much righteousness I have on myself. This is when we, as Luther explained, the glorious exchange where Jesus takes our sins and gives us his righteousness. So when you hear us talk about the righteousness of Christ, or in this context of righteousness, this is the glorious exchange righteousness where we in and ourselves are not morally good. We're just not. We are broken. We're lost. We are depraved, right? Sin has depraved us. We are broken. Everybody is. And so Jesus takes that brokenness to the cross and he exchanges it for his righteousness. So when we can say, when you practice your righteousness before people, it's not practicing how good we are. And this is where the Pharisees had it backwards. The Pharisees were practicing their righteousness so that they could be seen, so that they could be acknowledged, not Jesus being acknowledged. So again, he hits it right here in the front. How do we practice righteousness in a way but not for the sake of being seen of practicing righteousness. Because you could also sit there and go, well, hang on a second. Just a few weeks ago, we talked about how we have to actually practice righteousness. Now we're saying, don't practice it in a way that people can see it. And that is the difference. The difference is you and I can still practice generosity. We can practice righteousness. We can perform acts of righteousness that we're going to talk about. But it's not about us getting the pat on the back. It's not about us getting credit. And this is what Jesus is saying. Gibson says it this way. I I love this picture that Gibson says. Check this out. He says, morally, or morality, morality divorced from religion is a flower without root, which may bloom for a while, but in the end must wither away. Religion without morality is nothing at all. Worse than nothing, it is a sham. And what he's getting at is that if we are moral, but don't have religion, as he calls it, then we have this beautiful flower, but there's no roots, there's no depth. In other words, if we are just good people, but we are not disciples of Jesus, we have this good exterior, we look good, but there's no roots that grow deep. And then the opposite is also true. We could have these deep roots, but have no generosity and no outward-facing thing. So the way that Jesus describes it, he says, when you practice righteousness, and he describes it as being generous to the poor, giving to the poor. He said that two times just in that one passage. When you give to the needy, when you give to the poor, do it in such a way that the righteousness is not like the Pharisees who are being seen. So we don't have to prove how righteous we are. There's nothing that we have to do that proves to God how righteous we are. Righteousness is only by God and it's only through God. In those four verses, did you notice how often the word father is used? 
Why? Well, because it's always being reverted back to him. The problem is that we live in a performance-based society. So it's all about how well we do. So we are constantly being told in culture and society that your advancement is based on how well you do. Now, in your job and in other areas, that's true, right? That's a true statement. That if you're going to succeed, if you're going to be promoted, if you're going to uh, find whatever you want to do in life, then you have to perform at a certain level. The problem is that we're so ingrained with that that we then take that and apply that same thing to God. And so then we constantly feel like we have to prove ourselves to God. Then if we don't, then that God's angry with us. I have so many conversations with people just about that concept that, listen, you don't have to prove anything to God. You're righteous because of what Jesus did. You just have to walk in that now. You don't have to prove it to him. The hypocrites, however, the Pharisees, are constantly wanting to show people their praise. Now, this is just a metaphor. This is just an example. Jesus, what he, it's not literal. So in other words, the Pharisees didn't give and then these trumpets went off. It, that literally wasn't happening. But it was as if it was because they would give in such a way that they wanted everybody to see how much they were helping this poor person or this needy person. And so they did it so that they would get the pat on the back. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. I love this verse. It says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? I think that's a great question for all of us. At the end of the day, who am I trying to impress? Am I trying to impress you or am I living for God? If I'm still trying to please man, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So it's not about pleasing one another. It's not about being seen. It's not about the accolades from each other. That whatever we do, we're just doing this for God. For example, what if when you do some kind of act of kindness, nobody thanks you? How do you feel? So if you do something nice for somebody and nobody thanks you, how does that make you feel? Do you feel as though you're slighted? Do you feel as though you need that recognition? I had this happen just the other day. My son and I were doing something for somebody and we dropped something off. And he ran in and just did it. And he came back out and he said, like, they were like, he didn't, they didn't even say thanks. I'm like, so? And it was a really cool conversation with my 23-year-old of going, why do we do things for people? Why do we do it? Do we do it just so that they say thank you and stop everything that they are doing to make sure everybody sees what we did for them? Or is it just because that's what we were supposed to do? That that's just what God laid in our heart to do, and it's just being kind and, and doing something for somebody, and it doesn't matter what they say in return. But again, we kind of live in this kind of culture where we kind of give and expect. See, what Jesus is teaching is you don't do that. In fact, when he talks about your left hand and your right hand doing, what he's saying is you, you have to give in such a way where you yourself don't even really know what you're doing. That's what he's trying to say. Like, you don't even pay attention. You just, you just give of yourself. You just give being generous. And you don't worry about what somebody says or how generous you might be. So what is the reward? Because he talks about a reward in here. He says, you will receive your reward that the Pharisees who did this out in public, they, they did this in a way that they wanted everybody to see their righteousness of how good they are. Look at what we do. Look at all that we're doing to help our community so that everybody would just say how great they are. Well, he says, that's the reward. But what's our reward when we do when we do this, the reward that we have for doing the right thing with the right motives, the reward is eternal riches. That's where it always comes back to. It always comes back to eternity, to the kingdom of God. It always comes back to whatever I do here matters in eternity, including the way that I am generous, the generosity that I do. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, I love watching documentaries on like ancient Egypt and all those things. I'm convinced the aliens built it, by the way. Like, uh, you, know, you just start watching all these things and uh, mummies and, and the way they did that. And, and I'm always reminded every time I see that when they find a tomb or they go in and there's all these riches. Like, you know why they did that, right? They, they did that so they would take all that with them. Guess where it all is? It's all still here. It's somewhere. It's been raided. It's been tomb raided. It's gone. Everything that we're doing here on this earth, even though there's nothing wrong with having stuff, none of it's going with you. None of it. It is just, it's just you. It is your soul. It is your spirit. That's all that's moving on from this earth. And what Jesus is reminding us, again, in the Sermon on the Mount is where you build your treasure, that's where your heart is. And so if you're all about everything on this side of eternity, then what he's saying is you've already received your reward then. This is it. This is it. And it's going to be here one day and gone the next day. And you're not bringing any of it with you. Now, I'm not saying that we have to live in poverty. I'm not saying we have to make these vows of poverty, that we have to suffer. No, God still wants to bless, and I hope he blesses you like crazy. It's all about where your heart is, though. And if my heart is so wrapped up on the earthly things, it is hard for me to be generous in any area of my life. But if I think eternity, if I think about what I do here matters, it's amazing how that mind shift changes everything about what we do and who we are. The second point is this. Number two is this, the is that generosity is a practice of right motives. So it's not just about practicing righteousness. It's also a practice of right motives. I want to get into it just for a few minutes about where he talks about giving. Uh, our Bible, as you read that, probably many different variations of our Bible will say something about giving when you give to the needy. Uh, the actual translation is alms. And so when you give alms is what they're actually talking about. And in the Jewish custom, by the way, this is where it gets real fascinating. It's hard to separate out giving alms and being good and righteousness. Those were almost two and of the same. Charity, good works, giving of your alms, giving to the needy, helping somebody out where they are needed, alms, service, giving. It says that there's a leadership ministry worldwide article that talks about this. And it says that the giving of alms and doing good to other people. The word alms actually translates to righteous acts. So again, you could read that passage and it says, well, when you give to the needy, immediately we go for our wallet. What Jesus is actually talking about is much bigger than that. It includes finances for sure, but it's actually bigger than that. It's actually speaking about righteous acts that we do for people. To the Jew, giving alms and righteousness were the same thing. And so Jesus is addressing this. He's addressing not just the financial part, but he's addressing that the giving of alms, as one article said, is the greatest thing that a Jewish person could do. In this context was giving of alms. It was the first act of religion, the very embodiment of righteousness. Those two words were used interchangeably. And so again, as we think about generosity, I wonder how often we think about just actually doing good to other people. Just doing good. Not just throwing money at something, not just giving in our tithes and offerings, not just giving towards impact, which is all fine and it's all good and God blesses all that. But again, the issue actually goes to our motive. There is a right motive and there is a wrong motive. When it comes to our money, we know this statement to be true. You either control your money or your money controls you. It either drives you or you drive it. It either tells you what to do or you tell it what to do. That's just one of those areas. 
In fact, Jesus again addresses this in Matthew 6, 24 as part of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you can't serve two masters. And so as he specifically starts talking about finances, Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. You'll hate one and you'll love the other. Uh, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In other words, he talks about how money is the root of all evil. Jesus does not say that money is evil. He does not say that having good things is evil. He doesn't say being prosperous is evil. He doesn't say having a great job or a nice car is evil. It's all about the heart. It is a heart issue. At the core of it, giving and generosity is about your motive. Why do I give? Why do I give of myself? Why do I give of my finances? Why do I give of my time? Why do I do that? Is it so that... I get seen and noticed, or is it because I am living out the righteousness of Christ in my life? Jonathan Pennington says that Jesus' message in the sermon is that God is our Father who sees and cares about the heart, not just external righteous deeds and religion, that God examines our heart. At the end of it, generosity is a heart issue. That's what it is. It is all about my heart. Where is my heart in this? Where's my heart in the way that I serve? Where's my heart in the way that I help my neighbor? Where is my heart when I go and do acts of kindness to my community? Where is my heart in all of that? And am I operating out of a position of righteousness or am I operating out of a position that I'm doing good because I want good to be done to me and so that's the only reason that I'm doing it? Again, when it comes to doing this in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, it says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each person, each one, must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly, under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If there's one thing, I've said this before, that I want the people of Crossroads to be known for is to be cheerful givers. Not just in our giving on a Sunday morning, but in the way that we give to our community. The way that we are generous with our forgiveness. See, generosity goes so far beyond just your checkbook. Am I being generous with the way that I forgive somebody? Am I being generous in the grace that I offer people? Am I being generous in my mercy to people who doubt, as the Bible says we ought to be? Am I being generous when I hear of a need to serve somewhere? Am I the first one that says, hey, if I can do it, I will do it. I will be the first person there. See, that spreads generosity into righteous acts way beyond just the material side of things. See, oftentimes we are selfish in our forgiveness or we're selfish with our calendar or our time. We're selfish with our kindness and our mercy. We're real easy to defend and to fight, but are we also at the same time generous with the way, well, as Jesus says, the way that we love one another, that we're supposed to love each other the way that God loves us. And the way that God loves us was totally sacrificial, that he gave everything for us. He gave it all to us. He talks about the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. Spurgeon says it this way. He says, keep the thing so secret that even you yourself are hardly aware that you are doing anything at all praiseworthy. Let God be present. And I want you to hear this last line. Let me just read this last line again. Let God be present and you will have enough of an audience. I love that last line so much. Let God be present and you will have more than enough of an audience. Church, that goes well beyond just our giving. It goes into every area of our life. If we invite God into every area of our life, him being present is enough. It's enough. 
And so often, again, we are working so countercultural. We're working against the culture that tells us that more is better and that bigger is better. And that getting the promotions always above other people is always the end goal and better and better and better. And even though there's great truth in, in that on the worldly side, on the opposite side, Jesus speaks so countercultural to that, that what really matters is our righteousness. It is the acts of righteousness that we do for people. It is building up eternal wealth in heaven, not just here on earth. It is helping people while we're here to see the kingdom of heaven. That is what we are called to do. And if Jesus is at the center of all, that we have enough. 